On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This story is one that I wish I could have been there for, I think. Apparently being there was overwhelming, because every time that the people of Israel see God coming down on the mountain in a cloud, and every time that they hear Him speak in the Scriptures, their response is terror. Their response when they get too close to God or when they hear His voice audibly speak to them, which He'll do in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, their response is always fear, reverence, terror, because of the bigness and the power and the grandeur of God. What this chapter is about, and really what the rest of the book of Exodus and the law found in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what they're really about is how obeying God's law enables you to dwell near, but not in God's presence. And what's going to happen as we turn the page to this new chapter in Exodus is that we're going to see lots and lots of laws Laws about how to live, laws about what to avoid, laws about what to do, laws about how to relate to God and how to relate to others. And then we're going to see lots and lots of chapters in Exodus devoted to building this moving tent called a tabernacle that God's presence will dwell in. But what all of these laws are about is how a holy God can dwell in the presence of of an unholy people. So I want to point your attention this morning, leading up to the Ten Commandments that's coming in the next few weeks, to three truths from Exodus 19 that I believe are important to understand, but also apply to our lives in a very important way. The first of those truths that we see here is that an unholy people need a mediator. An unholy people need a mediator. Israel has been out of Egypt for three new moons. When they arrive here at Sinai, the famous mountain that God will give the Ten Commandments on. 
Moses goes up to the top to meet with God, and God gives Moses a message to come back down and share with Israel. And all throughout this chapter, and really the rest of the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses serves as a mediator between God and Israel. He goes up on the mountain. He can go and touch the mountain, but no one else can. Moses can hear from God, but no one else can. And then if they ever do, like tomorrow or next week in chapter 20, they begin to beg Moses to go talk to God for them because they're terrified of being so near God. Again and again through Exodus and all the first five books of the Bible, Moses is serving as a mediator between God and his people. You might ask why. The answer is this. Because the Bible presents God as one who is holy. The Bible presents God as one who is so holy and morally pure and righteous and just that he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. He is perfect. He is morally pure. He is perfectly righteous. He always does what is right. He always does what is just. And that means that when someone does something evil, when someone is living outside of God's perfect design, he cannot just overlook it. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. He's not a moral coward. He does what is right and just, and he deals with it. And the people of Israel, like all mankind, have rebelled against God from Genesis 3 onwards. And therefore as an unholy people, deserve, have earned the judgment of a holy God. Adam and Eve couldn't stay in the Garden of Eden where God dwelt. Israel, in the same way, cannot get too close to God's holy presence without facing His righteous judgment. So God appoints Moses with a special responsibility. Moses, who himself is an unholy and imperfect man. God calls Moses to draw near. He calls Moses to be a mediator who will give God's good laws to Israel so they can know how to be near God without facing His judgment. You see, for Israel to thrive, For God's plan for them to come to pass, they need to have God on their side. They need to have God dwelling with them, fighting their battles. But for God to be with them is dangerous because God is holy and they are sinful. So God will use this holy man, this mediator Moses, to prepare Israel to dwell near God, but to not get too close to God. This mediator Moses will give Israel the terms of this new relationship, this new covenant between God and Israel. This mediator Moses will give them laws that God calls them to keep, instructions for how they can dwell near God. This Moses will inform them of the blessings or the curses that will come their way, that they will enjoy or that they will face if they keep or break this new relationship, this new covenant with God. So what the mediator's job is, is to help Israel benefit from being near God without being destroyed by God. Now, 
if you think of God as an elderly, loving grandfather who just loves you no matter what and won't ever hold you accountable, and if you've kind of thought of God in that way, this sounds different because this is biblical, right? But because this is actually what the Bible presents. God is loving and gracious and forgiving, but He's also holy and righteous and just, meaning He always does what is right. The Bible in the book of Hebrews actually describes God as a consuming fire. Why? Because fire can help you. Fire can give you light. Fire can keep you warm. Fire can be of your benefit. But if you get too close to fire, what happens? It can destroy you. It can destroy you. It can burn you. And God is the same way in His holiness. So as the mediator, Moses, and later the Levite priest... Those are the the priests that come from Levi's family, the third son of Jacob. Moses and later these Levite priests through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, they are going to mediate as priests between God and His people Israel. But notice what God says to Moses in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. God desires for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? It means that in the same way that Moses and the priest are supposed to be holy mediators between God and His people Israel, God wants the whole nation of Israel to be a group of holy mediators between God and the nation surrounding them. How does that work? Israel is called by God to obey God's laws, to follow Him. Israel is called to be a holy people. And as they are holy and they live in covenant with God, God will dwell with them and things will go well for them. They will prosper. They will win victory. They will experience blessing. And as that is happening, and Israel always wins the battles and things always go well for them, the nations around will eventually notice and say, we want to get in on some of that. We want to get in on some of that. We want the God of Israel to be on our side. We need to go and join them. We need to go fall in line with them. We need to go and be like them. God wants Israel to be holy so that their life will impact the watching world who will be compelled to come and join the covenant community and live their lives worshiping the one true God. Or to say it another way, Israel's holy lives have a missionary purpose. Their holy lives have a missionary purpose. They need a mediator to be near God, but they are called to be mediators between God and the nations. But here's the thing. Israel cannot impact the nations if they are not distinct and different from the nations around them. They are called to trust in their mediator and to become mediators themselves. And the same thing is true 
if you're a believer today. Our mediator obviously isn't Moses, but our mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who goes before a holy God in our place as our substitute. Our salvation is not based on our religious rituals. It's not based on what we do. It's based on our faith in what Jesus has done. And we are called to trust in our mediator and then by the Spirit's power to become mediators ourselves. We're reconciled to God by faith in Jesus and then we're called to live lives that are marked by a ministry of reconciliation, offering the hope of the gospel to the watching and lost world who needs a Savior. We are shown the light of the gospel, and then we are called to be a light to the world. We are counted as holy because of our faith in Jesus, and then we're called to be holy in our fallen world. We are saved by the missionary efforts of Jesus. And then we are called to live on mission and be missionaries everywhere we go. But in order to impact the lost, we must be different and distinct from the lost world. We cannot be a great commission, soul-saving people if we are not a holy, obeying God's word kind of people. You can't do it. Many today, many churches today will tell you that you need to compromise on what Scripture says to become more relevant to the watching world. You need to order your services. You need to water down your message. You need to do everything you do so that someone who doesn't know the Lord will come in and feel comfortable. But have you ever noticed in the Bible that when sinners get into the presence of God, they're never comfortable? Ever. Why? Because they're sinners and God is holy. God's people who have been saved by His grace and transformed by the inside out, cannot be a great commission, soul-saving people who are impacting our community if we do not look any different from the community we live in. Our witness is silenced when we have the same values and are living for the same thing as people in our world who don't have the hope of the gospel. We can't be a Great Commission people if we're not a holy, obeying God's Word kind of people. Which means to win people to Jesus, our lives must be surrendered to Jesus. They must be lives of holiness and faith in our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. We see in our text that the people of Israel and we ourselves are unholy people who need a mediator. But there's more. We see, secondly, that saving grace is the source of willing obedience. Notice the word order there. Saving grace is the source of willing obedience. Not willing obedience earns you saving grace. There's a big difference there. 
God's message before he gives Israel the law in Exodus 20 is clear. Obey me and things will go well. God wants them to obey. Why? The answer is in verse 4. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I saved you on eagles' wings. You have seen how I brought you to myself. Why obey God? Why does God expect that Israel will follow and surrender and submit and obey Him? Because God saved them. Because God paid the price of their redemption. Because God had broken their bondage. God doesn't say, obey me and then I will save you. Clean up your lives and then I will save you. He doesn't say that. Instead he says, remember how I've already graciously saved you and defeated your enemies and proved that I am worth trusting and following me. Remember those things. Remember what I've done and then follow me. Why? The commands to obey God always follow the display of God's grace. God's commands to obey Him always follow Him displaying His saving grace to His people. God's going to say the same thing next week that we'll read in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Now we know, a lot of you might know many of those commandments. Don't do this and do do this and don't do this. But how does He start the list? Before He gets to the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, I am the Lord who saved you from the house of slavery. Therefore, as a result of, because of what I've already done for you, because I've already saved you, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall avoid this and this and this and prioritize and center your life around this, this, and this. The commands to obey God always follow the display of God's grace. That's the difference between a relationship with the one true God of the Bible and all other religions and faiths in the world. Every other religion will tell you this. You need to work hard enough and do enough things. And if you do enough things, then you will earn God's favor. Blessing will come to you, they say, on the other side of you being faithful and you obeying. You've got to earn credit with God. But the true God of the Bible saves by grace through faith. By grace through faith. And good works of obedience and faithfulness, they flow from being saved. They're not done to earn being saved. That is a very wide gap and a very big difference. In fact, understanding that difference is the difference between heaven and hell, according to the Bible. Should you spiritually discipline yourself and read the Bible and pray? Yeah, you should. Should you attend and serve in the local church? You should. Should you serve and love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah. Should God factor into what you watch and what you listen to and what you spend your time and your money on? Absolutely, He should. But not in a way to earn God's favor. 
Not to be forgiven of your sins. Not to merit yourself before God. Willing obedience flows from God's saving grace. Willing obedience is not the way to earn God's saving grace. Which is why God constantly is reminding Israel that He's already saved them. That He's already for them. God is not a dictator forcibly giving laws, but He is a Savior who has already met their greatest need and is worth following. And the same thing is true today. Many today think of church and the Bible and, and, and living by it as restrictive, joy killers, as if God is a harsh lawgiver whose aim is to keep you from joy instead of a loving father. And as sinners, we often find ourselves falling short of God's standards and feeling like a constant failure who has disappointed God when we don't perfectly obey Him. But friends, God is both just and gracious. And when we are in Christ, God relates to us as a Father whose love for us is not dependent upon our performance for Him. And it is only when you are assured of God's love for you that you will freely surrender to Him and not view His rules as restrictive but as life-giving. If you think that you've got to do this, 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 and this in order for God to love you and be pleased with you, then you will live under this burden where you're constantly in guilt. You'll feel like you're constantly in bondage and eventually you'll just give up the whole project because you know you can't do it. But when you're assured of God's love for you because your penalty has been paid and your bondage has been broken in Jesus Christ, then willing obedience will be the thing that flows from your heart. Many today rebel against God's laws because they want to be free. They want to be independent. But the Bible tells us that we are actually in bondage to our independence. We're in bondage to our desire to be free and independent. We think that we're free, but we're actually in bondage to trying to live life our own way and make our own rules. And in the Bible... True freedom is not doing as you please, but it is living life as God designed us, within His will and for His glory. True freedom in the Bible is not just doing whatever you want, but it's being shown the grace where God changes your heart from the inside so that what you want is what you actually need. And what you want is what God has actually designed you for. What's the world living for? The world is living to make a living. Living to make a living, to accumulate wealth and prosperity and comfort, to make this life easy. The world is living, trying to find meaning and purpose in all of these different things that God has made. Trying to find some joy along the way. Even if trying to find that joy and make a living means going against God and living for yourself and your kingdom instead of God. But if you live life in a fallen world long enough, then you will learn the lesson that you can spend your whole life looking for something that will satisfy and never find it. 
Because true freedom, true satisfaction, true purpose are not found here in short-sighted, temporary pleasures that always over-promise and under-deliver. True meaning, true freedom, true satisfaction are found in God alone. Only God will not leave you empty and dry. Only God will always be faithful and never change. Only God will always keep His promises. Only God can provide for us salvation and hope and joy. And the degree this morning to which you hear those things and think that they are lame and false promises is the degree to which you have been brainwashed by the empty promises of the world. Because true freedom is found not in making your own rules, but in submitting to the true king and living within his design for you. And that kind of willing obedience is only possible when you've experienced God's saving grace. Not from bondage in Egypt, but from your bondage to sin and its penalty through your faith in Jesus. That kind of willing obedience is only possible when you can rest assured that God's love for you is not dependent upon your performance for Him. We see in our text that an an unholy people always need a mediator and that saving grace is the source of willing obedience. There's one more thing I want to point your attention to this morning. And that's this, that old covenant blessings, old covenant blessings are dependent on covenant obedience. Old covenant blessings are dependent on covenant obedience. We just said that Israel should willingly obey God because they've already been saved, not to earn God's favor. But also in verses 5 and 6, God says something else. If you keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. If you keep my covenant, then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you notice the if and the then? You should, I yelled it. The if-then structure shows a condition that must be fulfilled in order for them to be blessed. On the surface, this seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? God just said, Obey me because I've already saved you, implying you're not saved and blessed by doing good works. Then, he says in the same verses, If you obey me, then I'll bless you. So which is it? Is salvation and blessing dutifully earned by our good works, or is it graciously given by our saving God? To answer that question, and to see its relation to us, we have to understand the difference between Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church. Okay, so it's a Bible lesson here. God promised Israel's forefather, Abraham in the book of Genesis, that he would multiply him, be with him, give a land to him and his descendants, and bless the nations through his family. 
Those are promises God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. In fact, in Genesis 15, God swore to keep that promise regardless of Abraham and his family's faithfulness. God entered into a covenant with Abraham that was unconditional. Meaning, God's going to keep his side of the promise no matter what Abraham and his descendants do. But then, hundreds of years later, when Abraham has had Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has had his 12 sons, and then they've multiplied for 400 years in Egypt, and now they've been set free from their bondage, and they're under Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years later, with that covenant still in place, that promise still in force, God enters into a different covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. That's our text. And this covenant is different because this is one where Israel's obedience or disobedience will dictate if they experience God's blessing or God's cursing. Meaning, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. There's a long list in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Whole chapters committed to, if you keep the covenant, this is what's going to happen. It's all good things. If you break the covenant, death, exile, judgment. So this is a different type of covenant that's dependent upon their obedience before God. Now, how does that covenant turn out for Israel? They miserably fail to keep the covenant again and again and again. That's really, from the book of Exodus on, the story. What do they do? They make golden calves. They fear the Canaanites more than God. They do what's right in their own eyes. They want a human king instead of a divine one. They worship false gods. They ignore God's word and his prophets. Just in general, they're not distinct from the nations in any significant way. From beginning to end, Israel breaks their covenant with God. And eventually, towards the end of the Old Testament, God brings down the covenant curses and judges Israel for breaking this covenant again and again and again. The way that God does this is His presence leaves them. They're sent into exile from the promised land by the hands of foreign enemies. They eventually get what they have earned for breaking this conditional Sinai covenant with God. Why am I telling you all this? This is why. You see, God graciously saved Israel from Egypt. But to continually have God's presence with them, to continually experience His blessing, they had to keep this covenant and obey God and be holy. The problem Israel had is they did not have what they needed to keep this covenant and obey God's laws. What they lacked that they needed to keep this covenant was hearts that had been transformed and loved God. God had given them good laws to keep, but they did not have the power within themselves to keep those laws. For Israel, God's laws provided a standard for them that would expose their sinful hearts and sinful nature and would reveal to them again and again and again their inability to be law keepers. But after they break the law, after they face the judgment of God, after the covenant curses come down upon them, after they're exiled from the land, what do the prophets begin to say? The prophets, under God's inspiration, begin to say, Israel still has hope. Israel still has a future. 
The prophets are full of this language, of this coming blessing, this light to the nations, even a new and better covenant, unlike the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Why? Why is there still hope for God's people, Israel, after they break the Sinai covenant in the Old Testament? Because the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis never changed. It never went away. It was always in effect. Paul, if you read the New Testament, Galatians and Romans in particular, is going to make this case. Paul is going to make the case in the New Testament that the reason why there's still hope for Israel is because God is a promise-keeping God and the promise and covenant He made with Abraham in Genesis is still in effect even after Israel breaks the Sinai covenant. By the way, side note, this is why we have to understand the whole story of the Bible and not just random stories. Because if we just understand random stories, then we'll never be able to make these connections and understand how the big picture of the Bible fits together. Unpause. God is still going to multiply His people. He's still going to be with His people. He's still going to provide a land for His people. He's still going to bless His people. He's still going to bless the nations through His people. But how? Through a new and better covenant that's coming in the future. A covenant where God's laws will not be written on tablets of stone that are kept in the Ark of the Covenant, but where God's law is written on the transformed hearts of His new covenant people who now love and desire to follow and obey Him. In this new covenant, God's presence will no longer dwell in a moving tent or a permanent structure of the tabernacle or temple, but God's presence will dwell and guide and direct and empower God's people to follow Him because the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in God's people. In the new covenant, forgiveness is not going to come through sacrifices that are offered week after week and year after year, but forgiveness will be offered through a suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will pay the penalty for our sin once for all and face God's judgment once for all so that God's people can fully be reconciled to God and can be assured of His pardon instead of constantly having to offer more sacrifices. In this new covenant, God's people will not be ruled by a faithless and fickle king, but instead by a descendant of David who is faithful and righteous and will reign from the throne of God forever and ever. How can these promises made all throughout the Old Testament come true only when someone comes who can do what Adam failed to do in the garden and what Israel failed to do in the promised land and that one to come is and always has been the centerpiece and the climax of God's plan from the very beginning. He is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 who has crushed the head of the seed of the serpent to turn back the curses of sin. He's the descendant of Abraham who will bless the nations. He's the true Israelite who will perfectly keep God's law and earn God's covenant blessings. He's the descendant of David from 2 Samuel 7 who will be right righteous and holy and rule his people forever. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 who will lay down his life as a sacrifice for God's people. He's the one who ushers in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 by sending the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in and transform the hearts of God's people who have trusted in his sacrifice. All the promises God has made, all the covenants he's entered into, all the stops and goes and the ups and the downs and the vices and the virtues in Israel's history have always been preparing the 
the way for this one to come, this Messiah, God's forever King, the suffering servant, the descendant of Abraham and David, the one who we all know as Jesus the Christ. That is where all of this points to. Jesus does what Adam failed to do in the garden, what Israel failed to do in the wilderness. Jesus keeps God's laws perfectly in a way that Israel and we cannot. Jesus earns God's covenant blessing by taking upon himself God's covenant curse that we deserve. He goes to the cross and he bears the judgment of God so that God's grace and forgiveness can flow to the Jews and the Gentiles who will bow the knee and surrender to him as Savior and King. He is the one who can overcome sin and hell and death and Satan. He is the one who can defeat death in the resurrection on Easter Sunday. He is the one who ascends to the right hand of the Father. He is the one who sends the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in and empower God's people. Why? So that a new covenant community known as the church will begin. A people who have been forgiven by His sacrifice, empowered by His Spirit, have hearts that have been transformed, have a desire to love and obey God, have a promised land of heaven coming in the future and have an urgent mission to be a light to the nations through their holy, distinct, prophetic lives even today. It has always been and always will be about Jesus. He is the centerpiece. He is the climax. He is the glory of God's plan. He is our Savior. He is our King. He alone is worthy of all praise and deserves our joyful submission to Him because of what He has done. And what you do with Jesus Christ, what you do with Jesus Christ means everything. You can ignore him to your peril and destruction, or you can surrender to and trust him for everlasting life. He is the fork in the road. You've got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus and how you decide will impact your life now and eternity. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you find yourself living your life independently of Him, trying to make your own rules and call your own shots, or if you're here this morning and you're trying to earn God's favor by doing enough good stuff for God, let me be clear and hear me loudly. True freedom is found in Jesus alone, not in your independence from God. And obedience... For us is impossible, but Jesus has obeyed where we can't. And our faith in Him is our only hope. You are never too far gone for His grace. But you can never earn that grace and God's favor on your own. You have to rest and trust in and surrender to Him. For Jesus is our only hope. And if you're here this morning and you have trusted in King Jesus... Don't forget that God calls us as His new covenant people to be holy. Don't forget that you're called to be a light to the world. Don't forget the high calling God has placed on your life to live for His glory and His kingdom and not your own. But as you remember all those things that God calls you to do, as you remember all those things and you work hard and you try to be faithful, but you know that you could do better, as, as you, you think about and try to work hard and run after God, don't forget the good news of the gospel. That because of Jesus Christ, our standing with God is not dependent upon our performance before God. 
but our standing with God is dependent upon Jesus's perfection and our faith in him. Don't forget the good news that our standing with God and our future eternal blessing is not earned by us, but it was earned by Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Lean on Jesus and praise him. And with that kind of unswerving, unshakable, unearnable assurance, with Jesus as Savior and treasure and King, be faithful to Him in the Spirit's power. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Not to earn His favor, but because you already have His favor. Not as a condition to earn acceptance, but as an overflow of worship, because you already have His acceptance. Let grace motivate your obedience. Let forgiveness motivate your faithfulness. And let assured pardon motivate your praise. In short, don't live your life trying to earn God's favor. If you're in Christ, remember, you already have it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy. God, your word hits every one of us in different ways. Your word... While its meaning never changes, it applies to us all in our own circumstances and our own stories. And God, you know every one of those details. You know everyone here. You know our hearts. You know what we're living for. You know what we care about. None of these things are shocking to you. And God, our prayer this morning... Our prayer this morning, God, is that you will lead us to respond to you as you lead. God, keep us from going our own way. Keep us from refusing to surrender. God, if you're speaking to anyone this morning, I pray, Lord, that they will do business with you. God, if anyone here doesn't know you and needs to know you, I pray that after the service they'll come find me and we can pray and talk about that. God, I pray for those who know you but are living their lives in bondage, trying to earn your favor that they've already got. God, help us to rest in you. Help us to marvel at the holiness of Jesus Christ and how he empowers us to be holy. Help us to be blown away by your grace. And we pray, Lord, that as we close and as we sing, that you will be magnified in all that we do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.